Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. It's been great to see topics related to mental health, personal growth, and the psychological sciences broadly become increasingly mainstream. But as their popularity has grown, so has the spread of some common misconceptions. These are ideas that can sound pretty convincing, and they're held by a lot of people out there, so there's a pretty good chance that you've run into a few of them yourself. Today, we're going to be exploring a few of the most common misconceptions around personal growth, therapy, and changing for the better generally. To help me do that, today I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm thrilled about this topic because it's genius, frankly, to bring it up and address it. <laughs> I'm glad we're doing it. Yeah, same. We've both been really looking forward to this one. To kind of set this up a little bit, we're going to be framing each of these misconceptions as a statement, and then we'll spend some time kind of unpacking it, talking about why that view is incomplete or problematic or maybe just a little bit misguided. Before we get into today's episode, I do want to give you a couple of quick reminders. First, you can follow us on social media. I've linked our various social profiles in the description of today's episode. Second, if you'd rather be watching this episode right now, you can watch it on my YouTube channel. I've included a link to that as well. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Things like full transcripts of the episodes, expanded show notes, and ad-free versions of all the stuff that we create. So let's start this episode with a big one. I'll go first and you can kind of respond to it, Dad. So here we go. Self-help, therapy, and really most personal growth content is fundamentally self-indulgent and narcissistic. It's vain at best and promotes a self-centered viewpoint that makes people less likely to care for others. And at worst, its focus on the individual distracts us from engaging in action out in the world in order to make it a better place. So, Dad, what do you think? I think first that I've heard that one quite often, and... I've thought about it a lot. Mm -hmm. First, much research shows that as a general statement, the more that a person becomes happier, the more that they heal old losses, old traumas, the more that they lift their mood up and out of depression, the more they lift their mood from anxiety to greater feelings of confidence, the more that they deepen their sense of personal worth, all these things lead people on average to being more pro-social, being more generous, more forgiving, more able to work out issues with other people, more likely to help someone who's dealing with some kind of suffering themselves. So that's the first key point. Second point, it goes back to the old adage, put your own oxygen mask on first, hmm. or a proverb in the Buddhist tradition that goes like this, if one in a river swiftly flowing is swept away, how can one help others across? So there's a practical wisdom in realizing that we need to fill up our own cups so that we have more for others over the long haul. Third point, general standards of decency and justice that apply to everybody also apply to oneself. Much as it's appropriate to treat others, with decency and fair play, it's important to treat ourselves in that way. If it's important to bring compassion and kindness and generosity and friendliness to others, similarly, we should be able to bring that to ourselves. We have rights mm. too. Really, really, really important. Fourth key point is that much of psychotherapy and certainly much of self-help, personal growth, and even things that are more around human potential and the upper reaches of human potential let's call that broadly awakening, they tend to be enormously preoccupied with relationships. There's a clear and hard-headed, clear-eyed recognition that to grow individually, we must also grow in terms of our relationships with others. And there's a natural movement and emphasis, even as a value, that as we develop ourselves, that includes developing greater compassion and kindness and commitment to justice for all beings, not just for yourself. 
I just want to kind of talk about that for a second here uh, to kind of situate where we are in time, because there's often a little bit of a lag between when we record these episodes and when we release them. It's, I think, September 2nd right now. And there's just a lot of stuff going on out in the world that I've been kind of preoccupied with over the over the last little while. So I've been thinking about these issues a little bit more. There's a quote from Audre Lorde, who was a poet and political activist, and it goes like this. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. And the reason that I want to bring that quote up, which encapsulates this whole territory so much better than I ever could, is that you sometimes hear this critique where if we begin to focus on ourselves to any extent, it pulls us out of relationship, as you were saying, with the wider world. And to me, it's actually the opposite. Just as you were saying, the more that we resource ourselves, the more that we have gifts to give to other people. And there was this point that was made by, I can't give proper attribution, but somebody else that I read, it's not an original thought, which is that when you get into structures that systemically oppress people in a variety of different ways, what those oppressors are trying to do a lot of the time, their goal is actually exhaustion. They're trying Mm. to wear you down. They're trying to wear you out. And the promotion of despair. Yeah, despair. And helplessness. Totally. To dispirit you. Absolutely. Those are all the things that they're going for because they know that a dispirited person is one who is unable to resist. Yeah. And that's the goal, period, of like systems of oppression, the, the ability to remove your ability to resist. I love how you're framing this. And so one of the most powerful things a person can do to take that back is filling their own cup taking a break. Stick it to the man. You know, (laughs) watering your own personal fruit tree. Absolutely. Like that is an act of resistance. And that's a very, very powerful thing. Because also that's where you have agency. Even if you don't Mm -hmm. have that much agency to change late stage capitalism in the aggregate today. uh, On the other hand, you have a lot of agency and you can overcome the propaganda of defeat, the propaganda Mm -hmm. of despair in your own circle, in your relationships, and especially inside your own mind, inside your own being and heart, you can exercise agency there. You're not helpless there. I just think that that's like such an important underlying point inside of this whole territory because it really grounds the work that we're doing on on things like this podcast. Like I'm not, I'm not under any illusions here. Like I think that the work that we're doing is very important, but if I could choose tomorrow between having everyone on the world be more psychologically informed or ending hunger, I would choose ending hunger. You know, like that sounds like a great thing to do. But hey, you know, we control the things we can control. We influence the things that we can influence. Yeah. I think also for people individually, you know, so much of my own work has been, especially until very recently, one person at a time. And my personal experience in many, many different kinds of settings, including many business settings and with just sort of families broadly, for every one person who is vainly preoccupied, even narcissistically preoccupied with their own self-improvement, I've encountered probably nine or 19 other people who actually had a hard time feeling that it was valid or allowed to really focus on themselves and help themselves suffer less and feel happier and more at peace. Mm. The last point I would just make about it, if I could, is that the straw man argument here is very much framed as either or, right? You're either saving the world or you're saving yourself, choose. (laughs) And if you're saving yourself, you must hate the world. What a jerk you are. Totally. Right. And no, it's not either or. We can do both. And it's all right also that there are natural rhythms in this. There's a time to go inward, to understand yourself better, to maybe get some help for some things you're grappling with. And then there's a time to move outward and get things done in the wider world. And it's okay at any moment in time, we might see somebody who's more focused on one or the other, and then we might say, oh, oh, you who's in therapy right now, why aren't you marching in the streets? Or to people who are marching in the streets, wow, you seem pretty angry. Why aren't you more in therapy, right? (laughs) And well, it's just because it wasn't that rhythm for that person at that moment. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a great, great point. And I really like just, naming the straw manness of it 
how people are perfectly capable of doing both of these things, and there's going to be a rising action and a falling action for both of them at various moments in time. And ultimately, they're supportive of one another. So I think that that's about all we can do on that one and the amount of time that we have here. Do you want to kind of move on to the next one? Oh, yeah. I want to throw you now. I want to throw one at you. (laughs) Okay, great. I'm not going to throw it to you. I'm throwing it at you. (laughs) All right, Forrest, here we go. Well-being is about effort, mostly. And if somebody like you, Forrest, isn't getting the results you want, if you're not happy, courageous, productive, loving, enlightened, and so on, you just haven't worked hard enough at it yet. In other words, if you're neurotic, if you're suffering, if you still feel traumatized, it's your fault. (laughs) You just haven't given sufficient effort. Yeah, absolutely. So you see this kind of line offered by many different people out there, and it's particularly sometimes offered by people who are actually quite famous in the self-help space. And I see it as a combination of like two classic biases, cognitive biases that Mm. people have. Uh, The first is survivorship bias, which is basically our tendency to focus on the things that are in front of us and exclude all of the things that aren't. Another way to put it is, well, it worked out for me, so it must be right. The second one of these biases is maybe the most influential and important cognitive bias that we have, which is generally referred to as the fundamental attribution error. It sounds very fancy, but it's a pretty simple idea. And it's the tendency for people to underemphasize things people don't have a lot of control over, like their situation or environment, while overestimating things like personality. And it's the belief that a person's actions are based on the kind of person that they are, rather than being based on the situation they found themselves in. And you can kind of test this for yourself, and you see it around the office all the time, where somebody comes in late for a meeting, and the person running that meeting says to them, I can't believe you're late, you're a lazy person, some version of that. And then that person goes into a meeting, and they're a couple minutes late, and they say, oh, you know, I just had to stop for a coffee, or oh, I got pulled into this other thing, or oh, I was on a phone call that ran five minutes long. They have 10,000 excuses for it. And one situation, talking about those situational factors, that is extremely important when it comes to a person's well-being is their individual experiences and their individual genetic makeup. These things have a huge influence on the person we are and the personality that we present out in the world. Something that I said recently on an episode, and the more I think about it, the more, I don't know, again, this might just be like a phase in my life with personal growthy stuff of one kind or another, but man, like nature plays such a huge role in this. Right. And we're just kidding ourselves if we think that certain kinds of tasks, and we're actually going to get to this in even more detail in another um, misconception that we have a little bit later, that certain kind of tasks are equally difficult for different people. Mm. And they're just not. One person might find well-being relatively easy to achieve. Another person might find well-being extremely challenging to achieve. And this can be through no fault of either person. It could be based on circumstantial factors, environment, the family of origin somebody has, their genetic makeup. It could just be based on so many things that have nothing to do with personality or effort. I want to really underscore that. As someone who's been engaged with, we could say, software, the mind Mm. for 40 plus years, the longer I do that, the more appreciation I have for hardware, the underlying genetic predispositions and makeup that we have, underlying temperament ranging from, let's say, a certain spiritedness, jackrabbitedness at one end of the spectrum, normal temperament, all the way out to kind of careful, cautious turtles as it were, at the other end of the spectrum. That's perfectly natural. And then life happens. All kinds of things happen. The amount of nutrition the mother is getting while she's pregnant, affecting that child in utero, the stress she's experiencing, the early experiences of that child, the impact of poverty, which is quite profound. If you want to do one major thing for mental health in the world, lift people up out of poverty massively. 
So these things really make a difference and they make a difference that's consequential in the body in terms of expression of genes, for example, epigenetic impacts of chronic lifelong stress or very specific acute stress, the impact of not being you know, fed well <laughs> as a kid or continuing that in your adulthood. These things make an enormous, enormous difference. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. And in a funny kind of way, acknowledging the impact of these impersonal factors, to which I want to really add the impact of environment every day. If you go out every day and you're dealing with prejudice and discrimination, if you have to wear an extra bit of armor, let's say as a woman maybe, to avoid being harassed just walking down the freaking street, um, you know, if you have to encounter that, if you're in a situation in which your family system, your in-laws, your neighbors are criticizing you or poo-pooing you or doubting you or continually messaging you that you're second class, second tier, don't really matter, don't have a voice, boom, that is hugely going to have an impact on you. If you feel like factually, because it's true, you have to swim upstream every day while people are throwing rocks at you from the banks of the river, that's going to really affect things as well. So I think it's really important to take all those impersonal forces into account because partly what that does, here's the good news part, it clears the decks for focusing on what your own responsibility might be, what your own opportunities might be going forward, where you do have some influence. And then recognizing where you do have some influence, it really sharpens the point that it's up to you to exercise that influence there, notwithstanding all these other forces that are bearing down on you. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's just a critical, critical point at the end where what happens sometimes with some of these misconceptions is that there is a kernel of truth or a a kernel of value is maybe a better way to put it. And inside this, the kernel of value is focus on what you can control. Mm-hmm. Focus on your own good effort. Focus on yeah. where you can find agency. Hey, there are ways that you can make a difference in your life. And if you really pursue them with thoughtfulness over a long period of time, or I should say maybe over a long enough period of time, then your life will get better. And I basically, more or less, with some caveats, agree with that. I think that that's a good kernel of truth. But then people just take it way too far and they make it all about effort and not at all about anything else. And that just to me is like such a missing of the boat inside of this whole territory. You know, if you really kind of live in these two truths, let's say, Mm. it can feel really peaceful. It's very liberating. Yeah, there's a kind of honesty and humility about so many things we don't have control over. But because we don't have control over them, we don't have responsibility for them. And we can't beat ourselves up about them. While simultaneously, the other second truth is the things we can shape in the minutes and years that are left to us ahead. And when you're just kind of rested in that, you really feel at peace. Great way to encapsulate it. So I want to bundle together some therapy ones here to ask, you know, the therapist. And we can kind of tackle them one at a time, but I thought that they had some thematic similarities. And so I'm going to kind of group them all together. First one, you're talking to a friend and you share with them, hey, I'm seeing a therapist. I talked to my therapist the other day. I'm going to therapy, whatever. And they respond with something along the lines of like, whoa, you're you're going to therapy. I mean, are you is there something wrong with you? I thought that therapy was for people who were really messed up. So that's the first one. Second one, some version of therapy really just promotes dependence on someone else. They're healing me and I don't want to become dependent on that. Then finally, I'm really afraid to go to therapy because I'm getting by kind of okay. And I'm worried about all the demons that could be lurking in my mental closet. And I, and I really don't want to, I don't want to deal with all of that. So I'm just not going to go to therapy. Oh, that's great. And I've dealt with all three of them repeatedly. So on the first one, therapy, psychotherapy, first of all, is a very broad field. And it'd be like saying medicine. Uh, why, you're going to see a doctor. <laughs> you must be really sick. Well, yeah. 
sometimes when you're really sick, you do go see a doctor. If you're dealing with a significant kind of issue, acute or chronic or or maybe a combination of things, yeah, you would go see a psychotherapist, much like if you are dealing with a serious physical health issue, you would go see a physician or another licensed health professional. That's fine to do that. That said, many, many people go to see a counselor or a therapist or kind of cousins, close cousins of that, such as through coaching, maybe because they want to deal with a kind of encapsulated specific issue in a larger context in which they're doing really well. Maybe they're dealing with a life transition issue. Their their partner suddenly left them or they're moving through a stage like they're getting ready to leave home or their their kids have left home eventually and they're looking for what's next. They're really interested in that. So in other words, there might be a particular issue but it's encapsulated in a broader field of, yeah, things are just fine. Next item in terms of why would people go see a therapist, very often there's a sense of, I'm I'm okay, but you know, I just kind of feel like I get some successes, but I sort of then sink back into this slightly glum attitude, or I know that I'm doing okay, but I had some rocky things happen to me in my life. I just sort of like to unpack and work through. That's a reason to go see somebody. And then also often people will go see a counselor or a therapist because they want to become more competent at something. Mm. They want to become more skillful with their own thoughts and feelings. They want to be better able to manage their mind and not have such intensive reactions to, you know, the jerks next door or the people they work with. They just kind of want to become more skillful And I think that's really legitimate. Last, sometimes people go see a therapist because it's an opportunity in a really busy life. Many, many people are living pell-mell from Mm. the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed, checking their phones along the way. And to have this opportunity carved out once a week, and I've had numerous clients who would do this and they were willing to invest the money because it really mattered to them. It's that one moment where they kind of step off of the train and pause and take breath and take stock. How am I doing? And, you know, what's going on with me? Both to get more in touch with themselves and also to get, um, to help themselves find some clarity about how they want to deal with things. So all of those are perfectly reasonable reasons uh, to go to see a therapist. And the bottom line really Mm -hmm. is, is it worth it to you? Is the time worth mm-hmm. it to you? Is the money worth it to you? Is the opportunity worth it to you? Because if you're going to see a therapist, you're crowding out other kinds of things. And if it's worth it to you, well, it's worth it to you. Yeah. I'll just take a moment here to talk about the dependence aspect of it really yeah, quickly. That'd be good. And kind of tied to that, there's an assumption inside of dependence that the therapist is fixing you. And if you kind of stop seeing them, well, then the the fix stops fixing, and therefore you'll just backslide. Certainly in my experience with therapy, and Dad, I would love your take on this as somebody who has conducted a lot of therapy, I've just gone to therapy, is that the therapist is really not fixing anything. The therapist is helping you develop an awareness of the things that are going on in your life, behaviors that are problematic, emotions and moods that are moving through your system, feelings that you have that are unresolved, history and the way that it's cropping up in your life, whatever. And then it's a collaborative process of them supporting you by providing different kinds of tools, maybe giving some insight, or a lot of the time, just kind of witnessing your experience as you're experiencing it in front of them and offering some soft support while that's happening. And a lot of the time, that can be remarkably healing. And there's this idea, I think that it comes from Freud, but please check me on that, Dad, called experiencing out. This idea that we have things that happen to us in the course of our lives, and part of the way that we improve, part of the way that we get better, is by having an opportunity to experience them out again. We have to resolve and complete the cycle that was initiated by some problematic thing that happened to us. And therapy is a wonderful space for all different kinds of experiencing out. And the joy is that when you've had that happen, a lot of the time you really carry it with you. I mean, I've had some wonderful experiences in therapy, particularly with um, specific techniques like EMDR, 
where I did the thing with the therapist and I just felt better about it basically from then on. Like the, the issue was resolved. So there was no dependence that could be established because we fixed the actual problem. So what do you mm. think about this, Dad? You said something really wise about this recently in which in a therapy, there's an environment in which you can become more aware of yourself. And also sometimes there's an offering of skillful means, mm, mm-hmm. of ideas, of methods, of tools, practices that you can use yourself. The rest of that is up to you. Yeah. What you do with that self-awareness, what you do with those skillful means, that's you. Psychotherapy is not like taking a medicine in which the medicine is doing it to you. Psychotherapy is not at all like that. It's a collaborative, co-constructive process. I think of it most fundamentally as sacred conversation. Mm. And we know what sacred conversation feels like, including with dear friends. Sometimes a stranger on a bus who just ends up next to you for the next 90 minutes. There's a kind of sacred conversation that happens there. I imagine our ancestors sitting around the campfire talking with each other and having sacred conversation there. So there wasn't a need so much for professionals. Mm. Sometimes it's useful to go to someone who does not have a vested interest in any particular outcome, who's constrained by many, many professional regulations and standards, and also has been trained in a variety of skills that can help us with our own minds. Inside that frame then, very often, sacred conversation can occur. And in Mm. terms of my own therapeutic orientation, and people vary, I think sacred conversation is probably the most important thing. Mm. I mean, there's a place for teaching skills. You know, there's a place for hearing people unpack their week, tell their story. But at the end of the day, I think that where therapy has the most benefit It's not so much in terms of what you learned about how to think about other people or to think about yourself, but the greatest value is in terms of what you've learned to feel about yourself, the Mm -hmm. feeling of it long Mm -hmm. after you have forgotten all the good advice and all the funny little sayings and whatnot from your therapist, you'll be left with what it felt like to be with them. And that's what Mm -hmm. you'll carry forward. Yeah. No, I, I think that was beautifully said, Dad. And I can also, you know, hear the the part of me that carries uh, Elizabeth, my partner, who's training to become a somatic psychologist now uh, with me wherever I go, just like kind of cheering in the background, the importance of feeling, you know, the, the resonance that these things can have in the body. Um, and I do think that that is just such a huge part of yeah. what we actually take with us out of therapy, because that's what you're really talking about here. Like, what do you take with you yeah. out of the office and into your life? I want to ask you one more uh, statement, misconception, however you want to put it, about therapy. And the reason that I want to emphasize this one is that I've actually heard this from a number of different friends. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of looked at it a little bit askance, but I kind of want your take on it. And it's that last one that I said, some version of, I'm afraid to go to therapy because I'm worried that it's really going to mess me up. What do you think about Mm -hmm. that? Completely legitimate concern. For example, you go see a physician and you're nervous about, will the treatment hurt? I got to get a shot. Oh, I don't like shots. Uh, Oh, I might have to learn some things about myself that that are frightening to me. I think I'll put off that visit for another six months. You know, these are understandable things. First question is, how's it working for you to (laughs) have so many rooms inside yourself locked and bolted And how's it working for you to go through your day dragging behind you all those suppressed memories and experiences, all that non-experienced experience, as it were. Freud had a saying, or there's a saying about psychoanalysis, the return of the repressed. It keeps coming back. That's why, as you said, experiencing it out is so important, getting in touch with it. You know, we release it by experiencing it out on the way out the door. Very important. So netted against what might be the costs of therapy, you have to ask yourself, what are the costs of not going to therapy and not taking care of this issue? 
Second key point, good therapy does not rip the scab off the wound. Good therapy follows the lead of the client, is maybe a half step ahead of the client or a half step behind the client. Ideally, I like to be a half step behind the client because then it's really the client who's leading the way with Mm. maybe some encouragement and some naming of options, some doors that the client could open by the therapist, but the client is really leading the way. And even as part of that, for another psychoanalytic saying, joining with the defense, Good therapy starts with where people are at. Hey, you got here. You made it to my office. You know, you if you paid for it, you managed to pull that together, you know, right? You, you, and you're taking initiative here. Good on you. Good on you. Good on yeah, you. And you, totally. you have this kind of job. You have this kind of life. You survived adolescence. You're here. You're here. Good for you. And what are the functions that your problem is serving for you? your way of being, Mm -hmm. your issue, your neurosis. How's it helping you? Let's start there. Let's start by appreciating its value for you. You learned it for a reason. You pulled it together. You've held onto it for reasons. Let's explore how those are good reasons first. We start there. Then we're on very good ground to explore, okay, now that we know the benefits, what are the costs? What's it cost you to have this longstanding habit? What's it cost you to be so shy? and so socially anxious? Uh, What's it cost you to, frankly, be a mild alcoholic, banging down four to five drinks a day, typically? What's it actually cost you? You're not a mess, you're holding a job, but you know what you're doing. What's it cost you? And then third question, is there a better way? Is there a way to accomplish the good purpose, but in a better way? So there's a process like that, but it's not about immediately attacking the defense or ripping it away from a person. Uh, Someone who would do that is just not skillful as a therapist. And Mm -hmm. it would be a little like going to someone who's a body worker or a masseur, masseuse, and they just went too deep too fast, which would then, of course, be counterproductive because you would brace and ah, push them away and maybe not even come back. So, you know, good therapy finds that sweet spot. I think of it as the Goldilocks spot, not too soft, but not too hard, not too hot, but not too cool, kind of in the right place, the middle way, no surprise. That's really how it should happen. Yeah. And also along the way to finish, good therapy teaches you how to handle those creepy crawlers in the closets. Mm. And Mm -hmm. good therapy resources people first before starting to take a look at what might be behind that door or in the basement Mm. of your own mind. And also good therapy to draw upon the phrase from Peter Levine, pendulates, like a pendulum Mm. swinging. Good therapy swings in and then swings back out. As you've heard me say, I personally emptied and have been emptying still the bucket of tears from my childhood one spoonful at a time. And that's appropriate. That's okay. But it's not like you're forced to just put your head in the bucket all at once and start trying to breathe tears. No, no way. Not good therapy. And you can also slow it down. You can say, wow, this is really intense. I need to come back in two weeks because I got to process this. Fear not, I'll be back, but I need some breathing room here. I need to, Mm. you know, that's totally okay too. Yeah. No, I think that was super well articulated. So Forrest, I have one for you now. One objection, let's call it. Here we go. (laughs) People use the word trauma way too freely these days. Everything's a trauma. You know, I went to the car dealer and it was a traumatic experience. You know, I couldn't get any hot water this morning in the shower because somebody else was there first. What a trauma, right? It sounds like everything is traumatic. And what you just talked about wasn't bad enough to really be trauma or traumatic, you're just overreacting. And in fact, you're harming people by casually using the word trauma who have really had to deal with trauma. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this one is a really nuanced one. And it's a really good example of what I was saying earlier about how a lot of these have the the kernel of truth at their core. And then the layers get built out around it and we really start to lose the plot somewhere in there. The first thing I want to start with is that we we need to begin any conversation about traumatic experiences by grounding it in a complete appreciation for the impact of 
what I, in our conversation with Bruce Perry, the couple that we've had, we tend to refer to them as capital T traumatic experiences. These are discrete, acute traumas that people can have. They can take a lot of different forms. And they're singular events that totally disrupt the flow of somebody's life. And you really can't overstate the influence of events like that on a person. And I think that it's true that by casually reducing absolutely everything to a trauma, there can be a cheapening effect there. And uh, particularly, it can cheapen the real points that people are trying to make about the difficulties that are found in their life by referring to, you know, going to the DMV as a traumatic experience. Now, caveat for some people, going to the DMV actually is a traumatic experience (laughs) for a variety of different, very, very good reasons. And so I want to talk about that a little bit here. There are a set of incredibly important findings from the literature on stress and trauma and all of that stuff. First point, the accumulation of stress over time really, really matters. Uh, This is sometimes referred to as allostatic load. Drip, drip. Drip. Yeah, drip, 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 whatever you want to refer to it, that slow process of building stress is incredibly impactful on people. And even relatively small stressors can build up over a long enough period of time. Death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah, death by a thousand paper cuts. Absolutely. Now, second, the pattern of that stress really matters. And this has also been a big part of Bruce's research. One of the most challenging things for a person, and particularly a young person to be exposed to, is inconsistency. So when sometimes your primary caretaker is great to be around, and sometimes they're screaming at you and throwing things, that is very disorganizing for a young child because they can't rely on anything. Third key point, the situation that the stressor is landing in is incredibly important. And this kind of gets back to what we were talking about a little while ago about the impact of situation and environment on people's ability to grow and change and acquire well-being and all of that good stuff. If people have a lot of resources, if they've built up a lot of strengths inside, if they are, say, a uh, from a majority ethnic background moving through the world, whatever it is, they can meet often even incredibly high stressors, an eight on a scale of one to 10, with relative ease. Whereas people who don't have all those resources, they might experience a three on a scale of one to 10 as totally debilitating. And this isn't because they're weak. It's not because they haven't tried hard enough. It's because their system is fundamentally different from the person who can handle that stressor much more easily. To give an example, let's say that uh, something goes wrong with your transmission and you take it to the mechanic and it's going to cost you $500 to get that repair done. Is that a major stressor or a minor stressor? And the answer is it completely depends on your circumstance. For some people, it's a minor inconvenience that you're going to forget about in the next couple of months. For other people, it is a total disaster, a potentially like life-altering situation because they don't have the money to fix their car. And now this whole cascade of events happens that leads to them being in a much more challenging situation. Unemployed and homeless. Yeah, all of, and all of a sudden that person is unemployed and homeless. Wow, that's a really big difference, right? So you add all of this up, you add these three key points, accumulation, pattern, situation, right? And what you find is that stress is contextual. And just because somebody doesn't have that capital T traumatic experience to point to in their personal history, doesn't mean they're not allowed to say that they haven't been traumatized. That doesn't mean that they don't have all of the boxes on the ACE score, the adverse childhood experiences checked. And this is a really, really important thing. um, And it's really honestly like a struggle for the field as a whole, because it's challenging for some people to point to the ways that these things have added up over time because they don't have that single discrete traumatic experience to point to. So it's really easy for misses to happen in practice where you don't realize that somebody's system has been fundamentally altered by their experiences in the way that it has. So what do you think about all this, Dad? I think that was an incredibly articulate summary and I learned things Mm -hmm. just listening to you there for us. (laughs) So good on you. And 
couple kind of sort of perspectives come to me about it. Yeah, uh, please. First is the notion that as we walk by people on the street, everybody has a secret struggle. Most likely, much as you are grappling with some kind of secret struggle yourself. And I think it's important to be large-hearted enough to appreciate the rocks in the backpacks of different people, the rocks in the shoes of different people, even people who seem to look like they've kind of got it together. One thing that's been really striking for me uh, when I look back on my career is the number of times I've been in the room with someone who looked quite put together. They, let's say, were middle-aged, they had a college degree, they had a fairly substantial job, they seemed equipped in life, you know, they had a stable residence. And yet when you peel away the surface and they began to tell the story of their life, I would just sit there with my jaw on the floor at all the things they've had, they had to deal with, or even right now that they were barely holding it together in terms of, and a lot of what they were talking about would be, I would say individually mild to moderate events. Uh, painful, difficult, stressful losses, uh, mistreatments, et cetera, which added up over time. A lot of micro traumas can accumulate, much as you said, uh, to a macro kind of trauma. So we just don't know often. And I think it's important to have respect and, and a not knowing and an, and an inquiry kind of attitude, a beginner's mind attitude when we, when we meet other people. And mm. then last to finish on it, it's to bring that same kind of kindness and generosity of you to ourselves. Because most people are more dismissive about their own suffering than they are about the suffering of other people. Hmm. And people can be really kind of harsh and mean to themselves that they really ought to buck up. It's no big deal. Other people had to deal with that and they're doing okay. Why are you so weak? Why are you such a wimp? Why are you such a loser? et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really wrong. It's really inappropriate to do that. We can be really large-hearted and clear-eyed in our recognition of what's hard for somebody, including for ourselves, as where we begin. But it's not where we end. Mm. And then after we start there, then we move into doing things that can help ourselves, including potentially going to talk about it with a therapist, mm. going back to Lori Gottlieb, who we yeah. have interviewed also, maybe you should talk with somebody about that <laughs> <laughs> to kind of paraphrase the title of her wonderful book. Yeah. Yeah. And really well said again. I want to spend just a minute talking about something else that I think is sort of important to name here, which is that our whole definition of what is stressful and what isn't stressful is based on a set of assumptions. It's grounded in, in our culture, a Western viewpoint. It was created by majoritarian people, mostly Caucasian men. And it assumes a lot of things as like basic and easy that are kind of wild if you start to think about it. Like, let's look at how children are, are raised fundamentally. And this is a huge topic, but like sitting in a class for six hours, paying attention to a teacher, starting at the age of like nine or even or younger than that. Six or five. Six, yeah. five, whatever. Completely insane. Completely oh, yeah. insane. Like your body is not actually built for that. No self-respecting hunter-gatherer yeah, would ever absolutely. expect would ever that consider doing that. children. It, totally, absolutely. And you have a, a system and a body that is fundamentally similar to that hunter-gatherer. It's yeah. changed a little bit, but it's really, really more similar than it is not. And if you think about so many of the things that we just take for granted, sitting in a cubicle, sitting um, in school, going to the bank, interacting with the DMV, to use that example again, whatever, figuring out your health insurance, people would have been baffled by these things just a couple hundred years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And would have viewed them as totally insane pursuits. Yeah. And I think that it's really helpful to kind of ground how stressful these things are or aren't for a given person inside of that history. And this is before we get into any kind of neurodivergence on any level, ADD, ADHD, uh, autism spectrum, whatever, any of these things where, again, as you're saying, Dad, a lot of the time, these things aren't visible. Yeah. 
And what we've done is we've taken a perspective where, you know, 50, 60% of people can like kind of get by well enough doing these things without it totally disorganizing them. And we've just applied that to everyone. And 40% of people is a lot of people. And to be clear, I'm kind of drawing that number out of my pocket here. I don't have a lot of research backing that up. But I think that what you'll find is that in a very large percentage of the population, there's something. Maybe they're a little bit more sensitive. Maybe they're, as you were saying, a little bit more energetic. Maybe they're a little bit more depressive, you know, whatever. And just because things are okay, are survivable, for 50% of the population does not mean that they work out for everyone. And I do think that it's really important to kind of ground the whole trauma conversation inside of that. Fantastic. Fantastic point. Just great. Yeah, but, you know, as someone who did well in school myself, I look at it, conventional curriculum, and it's my definite professional opinion that it's well-suited to about a third of the kids. I was among Mm. them. It's Mm -hmm. okay, it's okay, they can deal with it for maybe the middle third. And for a third of the kids, irrespective of intelligence, it's a terrible fit. Yeah, totally, could not agree more strongly. So as people might have noticed, we waxed a little poetic during this episode. We really got into this one. I got into this one. I got fired up a little bit. It felt like you got fired up a little bit at uh, at some points there, Dad. And um, we've had a great time doing it. And we also had a couple more uh, more of these that we were sort of planning on getting to. That's right. But I'm um, looking at the clock, and we're starting sort of starting to uh, get to the point where we would normally cut off an episode. So we've decided to do this one as a two-parter. Um, we will release, of course, as you're listening to it right now, this episode's coming out this week. And then we're going to have a part two, which I'll be releasing next week, which will explore some more of these misconceptions uh, that are very present in the space around a variety of different personal growth-related topics. So before that, I am going to do a recap of today's episode. So today we talked about common misconceptions having to do with personal growth. So today we had the first of two conversations dedicated to common misconceptions that people have about self-help, personal growth, therapy, and psychology all together. The first misconception we addressed is the idea that self-help, therapy, virtually all personal growth is fundamentally self-indulgent and narcissistic. It removes us from the world, and it just leads to this very self-centered perspective. We tackled this one from a number of different directions. First of all, most of the time, filling your own cup gives you more, not less, to contribute to other people. Second, an enormous amount of the literature related to psychology actually focuses on how we are in relationship with others. We heal in relationship. And most of the skills that we're developing, we're developing so we can get better at using them with other people. Essentially, being good to ourselves is often good to the people around us. And if you've been in any kind of long-term relationship, whether that be with a romantic partner, a parent, a child, a sibling, you know you've had a felt experience of how when that person starts to clean up their material, wow, the relationship as a whole can benefit in so many ways. The second misconception we explored is the idea that well-being and happiness is mostly about effort. And if somebody isn't happy, well, they just kind of haven't tried hard enough yet. And I responded to this one with the whole body of knowledge around nature versus nurture. Happiness is just easier for some people than for others. Sometimes this is a genetic thing. Sometimes this is a circumstantial thing. Sometimes it is an effort thing. But there are so many other factors than effort that can confound this whole situation. And one of the most discouraging things when you're actively engaged with your own growth, your own healing, to hear from somebody else is, well, you just need to try harder. This also gave me an opportunity to talk about the fundamental attribution error, which is such an important cognitive bias to be aware of. And it's essentially our tendency to attribute things to personality rather than circumstance. When somebody else does something, particularly if they do something that we view as problematic, we view it as a failing of their personality. But when we do something, particularly if we made a little mistake, we made an error, we were late for a meeting, we said something without thinking it through first, whatever it is, we see all the circumstantial factors 
that influenced that decision, that influenced that moment in time. And we often give ourselves a pass for those circumstantial factors while we blame other people for their problematic personality material. Then we spent a while talking about therapy. I bundled together several for Rick to unpack. They included things like therapy is for people who are really messed up, therapy promotes dependence on someone else, and I'm afraid to go to therapy because I don't want to unpack my material and I'm worried that it's going to mess me up. And he addressed all of these in turn. Therapy is for, well, anyone who wants to go to therapy. There are a lot of different reasons that somebody might choose to talk to somebody in that kind of a private setting. Then therapy is really not about this kind of way in which the therapist is fixing you and therefore you might become dependent on it. If they're any good, they're going to be giving you some tools that help you fix yourself, essentially, that allow you to have a greater awareness of the material that's causing you problems. And then finally, any therapist worth their salt is going to progress at a speed that is right for you. We close by talking about one of my favorite topics, trauma and traumatic experiences. The misconception is the idea that people use the word trauma too freely these days. They're making everything into a traumatic experience. That experience that you just shared to me, it wasn't actually traumatic. It was just like a little bit stressful and you're really overreacting right now. Personally, I think that this is one of the most deeply problematic misconceptions that exists in the space these days. And we absolutely want to have an appreciation for the enormous impact of full-on acute traumatic experiences that people go through. But the truth is that stress is cumulative, and people are different, and different experiences are going to land on different people differently. So just because something seems like a three on a scale of one to ten to you— does not mean that it's being experienced that way by somebody else. And critically, this is often not their fault at all. It has nothing to do with their good effort. It has nothing to do with the ways in which they've showed up in the world. It has nothing to do with their desires. Maybe they don't want that reaction, but something is happening inside of their body, and they might not be in control of it for a variety of perfectly good and perfectly understandable reasons. To really simplify this, stress is contextual. What's stressful for one person might not be stressful for another. What's traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for another. And yeah, we want to be thoughtful here. We don't want to demean the word trauma by applying it to absolutely everything, of course. But just because you don't think that an experience would have risen to the level of trauma for you does not mean that it didn't rise to that level for another person. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. Also, if you really want to support the podcast, you can tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways for us to reach new people. Then, quick reminder, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, really even less than that these days, you can support the show and receive a variety of bonuses in return. Things like transcripts of the episodes, expanded show notes, and ad-free versions of all the content that we produce. So, until next time, thanks for listening.